0: I call it professional athleisure. The least <laughs> formal clothing and like the coziest clothing that you can get that away you with to wear in public. So like a cashmere sweater that has like hearts and stars is like my totally where I want to be in life.
1: This is Unorthodox, the Universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today, as ever, by my co-hosts. Tri-hosts? Can co-hosts be more than one?
0: We are the trifecta we are the three holy trinity. Who are
1: one? We are three.
0: The unorthodox trinity? (laughs) Could
1: almost make a religion out of that. Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Oh,
0: hello. And
1: Tablet Senior Writer Leah Liebowitz. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. This week, we bring you interviews from our live show in Stamford, Connecticut, which seems 8,000 years ago now, and yet the interviews are as fresh as the morning dew on a young toddler's blonde hair. They have been cryogenically frozen. As she runs through the meadow. Correct
2: and resuscitated right now.
1: We spoke in Stanford, and that was a great event. That was a, a wonderful event at a wonderful shul. We spoke with the world-famous rabbi, author, and teacher, Joseph Telushkin, and also with Farouk Kathwari, who's the chief executive officer of furniture company Ethan Allen, and also an interfaith activist of some note. And those interviews are, are simply simply a delight. It will be our pleasure to revisit them. But before we get to that, we have so much to cover, so much in the news of the Jews, the news of Liel, the news of Stephanie, the news of, of, of moi. Uh, may I update you on my father's house? uh so for those of you who have not been on our live tour uh and don't know this because I've, I've told this to audiences in detroit and denver but it's now time to catch up the rest of you my father suffered an eye injury that i can only call um cringe inducing scrotum tightening grotesque uh hanky clutching if you're easily uh squeezed out by descriptions of injuries Skip over the next eight seconds, in which I say very quickly, he tripped over an open dishwasher door and fell into the corner of a stepladder and smashed
2: his eyeball. Can I just say, having like actually been in combat, an open dishwasher door is probably my biggest fear. I mean, anyone who's seen Garden
0: State knows that that shit is serious. I have (laughs) not seen
2: Garden State, and I do not fear Hezbollah, but a dishwasher door, I I would... Not take that. It yet. will fuck
1: your shit up. So let me let me just say that the long and the short of it is, he gets himself to the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Institute at Mass General Hospital. My mother gets him there to be more precise, and um, they end up saving the eyeball. Thank God. And uh, are probably going to be able to get back a lot of his vision in that eye. In the meantime, he may be rocking some sweet, sweet eye patches. My, my mother's very into the Moshe Diane thing. She keeps saying, does anyone in history have an eye patch besides Moshe Diane? And so I Googled people who have had eye patches and of course you get Sammy Davis Jr. And an assortment of pirates. But the, the important thing is that the doctor who first operated on his eyeball was one Dr. Grayson Armstrong. Grayson Armstrong. And, you know, I will say that I do have something, and I'm not proud of this. I can't defend it, but I have a kind of natal, ancestral uh, Jewish doctor chauvinism, which is I feel that the guy operating on that eyeball should be
2: Doctor Herschel Cohen. That's
0: who deserves that eyeball. That's right. who
2: deserves that eyeball, and that's Grayson Armstrong, and not Grayson who's and if, operating as he's having a dry martini, stopping his wife while having
1: while
0: well, shattering sex. Why? Do, what is this? What while is playing the sex part while of playing this?
2: lacrosse, he's just a he man. He's a he can, he. can do everything.
1: that's right. Lacrosse. Sex and it's operations. <laughs> Wait, I have to say. So, the, my friend Seth Lobus, who is a wit to end all wits, uh, we were once trying to describe a certain kind of guy. We went to to Loomis with for high school, and it was like he was a little lacrosse player, but he he was like also kind of you know one of those lean people who might also have been a swimmer in the winter. And also, we had a house in Greenwich, and he was sort of waspy. And Seth said, "Yeah, he's a lacrosse." I was like, yes,
2: that's that's the word we want. That's Dr. Stretch Armstrong
1: right there. That is Dr. Grayson Armstrong right there. And the next doctor operated on my dad was Dr. Dean Elliott, which could be a crypto-Jewish name, but I like to think that basically the entire ophthalmological department- They're like
0: defying stereotypes.
1: Is just all of these, you know, well-bred St. Paul's- or Groton graduates and they go back to their clubhouse and say aren't you glad we do not let in the Jews to this department <laughs> no Dr. Grayson Armstrong would never say that the point is Like, I want mail from other listeners who have had their eyeballs reconstructed by Dr. Grayson Armstrong because I think I haven't met him yet but um, he may be my favorite person in the world for what he did for my dad so a huge mazel tov to him if by the way you
0: listening Grayson Gray
2: Gray 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 Mazel Grayson top. of course whose real name is Dr. Gershon <laughs> Armowitz. Abramowitz <laughs> All right. from Brooklyn. Mazel
1: Tov! And by the way, Grayson, Mazel Tov means his brother is the Chabad rabbi <laughs> in Amherst. <laughs> What's up with you guys, Stephanie? What's going on?
0: Okay, so we just came off the most insane leg that will be of our book tour. We were in Detroit, then we went to Denver, then Liel and I continued on to Houston. We had oh, insane... I haven't even talked to
1: you guys since Houston.
0: Oh my God, you don't even know because I wasn't I in have Houston a, with you. I have a fun, a fun bit of news for you. So we're in Detroit have this amazing show in West Bloomfield at their JCC, which is like an incredible JCC. Yep. We do this really fun show, do the signing. Great book expo. Yes. And Leal, what do you get invited to?
2: I am approached by
1: two amazing people. I should say, before you were approached by the people you're about to speak about, I was approached by no fewer than two ophthalmologists who said, if Dr. Armstrong doesn't work out, we, we will give him great <laughs> I, heard, I
0: heard from a third the next day being like, by the way, right. I didn't want to bother Mark, but if he needs me, I'm <laughs> but here. Do, but
2: do you know, we, we do good second opinions. So uh, I see your ophthalmologist and I raise you, George Roberts and Sarah Reingold, who are two amazing people and great listeners and new friends of ours and of this show, who asked if we would like to come to an event that they're helping to put together for JARC, which is this amazing organization that really does wonders for Jews, especially kids with special needs. Uh, And we said, you know, hey, yeah, we'd always like to hang and, you know, you guys are so cool. And I said, oh, by the way, did we mention that the entertainment for the evening would be earth, wind and fire? (laughs) At which point Stephanie and I are just like, yep, a hundred percent. We're like, we
0: love Jewish philanthropy. We'll be there to support you.
2: (laughs) And it was like it was nineteen. It was. It insane. was like it was September.
0: We, I <laughs> we mean, remember. Do you remember. It was insane. It was the craziest thing. I also. This is embarrassing, but I also. It's. It's kind of like when I watch Casablanca.
2: Right. Oh, it's from there. I heard that quote. all
0: these Earthwind and Fire songs, and I was like, "This is them." Yeah. I just assume that they are like I've hear, heard like covers of covers at this point, and I'm just like. You I just every song. You didn't realize shows. these songs
1: came with the elevator. You didn't yeah. <laughs> realize someone wrote them. You didn't realize every song at your wedding was actually. Well,
0: I was like, yep, that definitely, uh-huh. you know, Boogie Wonderland, I don't think I realized. Shining Star, didn't realize. Every
2: single one. Every of the song. They so, were amazing. Uh, so
1: good. And then
0: we get to Denver and our big adventure there, I will say, Liel had been talking a lot about going to this place, Casa Bonita. Casa Bonita. And I was like, what is this place? I keep hearing about it, Liel. What no, it is
2: started with, with you saying, there's absolutely no way I'm going to that filthy, gross place. Well,
0: I didn't know what it was. And I was like, you, you keep talking about someone. What's the, Who's the celebrity that you say goes there? And he goes, Cartman on South Park. Anyway, it's like this touristy, like quasi-Mexican restaurant in a strip mall where there's like cliff diving inside and a cave. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But anyway, so at the Denver show, a bunch of my family, um, the, you'll hear about this when the show airs, the, the Roth House side. So Grandpa Al's side of the family, his brother and um, their family were there. And after the show... My, my cousin Leslie comes out to me and she's like, after we like hang out tomorrow, we can go to Casa Bonita. So anyway, I went there, had a margarita at one in the afternoon. We just, we, I think like- Watch a, a w- cliff
2: diving show. Was it all indoors. you guys hoped it would be? Oh, I, I was in seventh. But element. it's
0: kind of like when you go to like an arcade. Like I used to love going to boomers in, in South Florida. And finally I went, went, <laughs> I went with my younger cousin and I was in college and I was like, oh, it's lost its magic. So I think I kind of was like, it's like going somewhere with the lights on. See, I didn't have the magic.
1: That never happened to me. The magic is still there. The magic
2: will the magic always be is in Casa Still there,
1: And
0: then... So then we're in Houston, and there's an event I'm really looking forward to, which is the ladies' breakfast, because like that is my target demographic, ladies and breakfast.
2: <laughs> That's the <laughs> Venn diagram right there. It's like breakfast and ladies. I mean, the
0: only ladies. thing that would have been better if it was a brunch and not a 7 a.m. breakfast. But <laughs> however... They I, break
1: fast early in Houston. I
0: will say that Liel ended up filling in for me at that ladies' breakfast, because my sister had a baby. Oh my also, god. And I busted out of there a day early being like, I got to get home to see this cute baby.
2: And I disappointed a bunch of ladies in Houston.
0: <laughs> but I got <laughs> to- <laughs> we was so
2: excited to see Stephanie Budnickberg, uh, hey ladies. Oh, what's up? I
0: think they liked I think it my was name, a good My
2: name's Leil. <laughs> I felt bad, but
0: I think it was the I think they I think you were a good a good sub for I, me. I don't know
2: about the Instagram. I can talk about the instant pot if you want. <laughs>
0: And how it's not Jewish. Or it is Jewish? What is it? Super
2: Jewish. But it was a lovely (laughs) breakfast. And Houston's amazing.
1: Wait, the Instapot is super Jewish? Of course it is. It could cook brisket.
2: I don't even know what it is. 45 minutes. But the point is that Houston is incredible.
1: The point is that we have been touring the country and it's live show, live show, live show, live show. And we're not even close to done. Like we have scheduled a year in which we will see our families, not at all, because we want to see all of you.
0: So tonight, Leah, I don't know why Leah and I are doing so many events together, but that is, we are the we are the traveling show. Tonight um,
1: being Thursday the 14th. Thursday the
0: 14th, we are in Margate on the Jersey Shore. So, Philly friends, Jersey friends. and
2: JCC by the Sea. Uh,
0: New Yorkers
2: uh, with a gambling problem who want to hit Atlantic City on the way there or back are welcome to join us. Yep.
0: Then... This Sunday, November 17th, we are doing a live show at 1 p.m. at the Myerson JCC of Cincinnati. It's part of their Global Day of Learning.
2: Although we promise you, you would learn very little. You'll
0: learn nothing from us. And then the following week, I go to Fran Drescher, Pennsylvania, November 20th at 7 p.m. Temple oh, Sinai. Yeah. Oh,
1: See you there. Oh, yeah. Temple Sinai. And, and then. And, and then. then. In a world
0: This is an amazing one Liel and I Sorry Mark
1: <laughs> <laughs> You guys get Houston I Get
0: lost in the mail We are at the Center For Jewish History Doing a really Really fun event That's on 16th Street That is a downtown New York City Jewish institution Which I feel like Is an important thing Because usually we're On Upper West Upper East
2: All singing old
1: death For those of you Who don't cross 34th Street That's right This is like your event Like me
0: events. Except for mm-hmm. Unorthodox <laughs> Nor- events for this. Um, That's going to be Really fun The following night November 22nd Lielle and I Are at Sutton Place Synagogue For their Welcome Back Shabbat We're going to do a book talk after services.
2: We're like the Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. It's true. (laughs) Uh,
0: I'm Tony Bennett. Uh, And then the following week, I go back to my ancestral home of Long Island to do an event in Port Washington at the Community Synagogue where my friends the Remlers go. Oh, yeah. Um, That's December 5th at 730. And then, Mark, tell us where we go from there.
1: After that, um, and I will be in Madison, Wisconsin, I should say, giving a talk at the University of Wisconsin while you guys are in Port Washington. So people should also check. We'll put that up on on the website as well, which is tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. And then uh, Stephanie and I are converging in beautiful San Diego County
0: so Litschig is a really cool foundation, and they have this thing called the Hive, which is an Encinitas, and it's basically like a farm and like a laboratory for Jewish innovation and ideas, and so we're basically going back to the land.
2: It's a West Coast kibbutz.
0: Yes, basically, and we're going to be there for a weekend residency, which we've never done before, and it sounds really, really cool and fancy, and the first thing we're doing is an Orthodox Shabbat.
1: Producer Josh Cross, would you you help set this all up? You've been, you've been riding this pony for a long time.
3: What we're doing is Friday night Shabbat, there is a farm-to-table three-course dinner, plus beer, wine. I, I've been promised a signature cocktail, but they didn't tell me what it is. It's only $36. bucks. you are going to get a chance to talk to Mark, talk to Stephanie. Nobody wants to talk to me. Uh, and then t- the following night, only for a suggested donation of $12, we're going to do a live show there right on their farm.
0: We have an amazing guest coming in who can reflect the agricultural and the food parts of, of what The Hive is and what Leech Tag is doing over there. Can
1: they come to the dinner on the 6th and then the live show on the 7th?
2: I hope to see everybody at both.
1: So there's a Shabbat dinner on, on December 6th, live show December 7th at The Hive, Leech Tag Foundation. And this extraordinary eco-Jewish experience. For more information, go to leichtag.org. You're wondering how to spell that? L-E-I-C-H tag.org. L-E-I-C-H-T-A-G.org.
2: Hope to see you in San Diego. And then, Oh, wait, there's more? Day. Oh, there's so much more. Okay. The following day. Fresh off my European tour, my grand tour, my coming out debutant tour of Europe, uh, we will be where, Stephanie?
0: We are going to Phoenix, to the Valley of the Sun Jewish Community Center. We are gonna see all of our friends, Sibby Pearl-Turner and her family. Oh, Uh,
1: amazing. My high school friend, Jordi Oland, will be there with his wife.
0: Amazing, and the Storch fans. They're having a
1: date night. The Olands are having a date night there.
0: Romantic. We will make
1: it, we will make it. We'll we'll sign their book
0: very romantically. That's right. And the tour definitely keeps going after that. We just are out of breath. Um, to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live and you can get all that information you get tickets for everything a lot of these shows are free a lot of the events are free so just take a look there and hope to see you on the road again okay should we do news of the jews yeah
1: a little news of jews who are not us news of the jews n-o-t-j Most important news of the Jews of the week, uh, rubber ducky at Auschwitz, according to the Jewish Telegraph. Before you even continue,
2: does it sometimes like when you read those things, does it sometimes really kind of feel (laughs) to you like the universe is sending items our way?
1: sometimes Like people are
2: doing things for no other reason than for us to be able to mock them on this here show.
1: I I do think there's like a drinking game at the the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and other news outlets saying, let's see if we can find a story crazy enough that unorthodox features it. When (laughs) you see a headline like rubber ducky at
2: Auschwitz, you're like, yep, it's going to be a great... Great show.
0: That's how the song is. Rubber
2: ducky at Auschwitz.
0: You Um, make Auschwitz?
2: Rubber ducky, you'll see fun. You make my
1: shower so much fun. So apparently this travel blogger was at um, Auschwitz, Auschwitz, and he took a picture uh, that he posted on his Instagram account of a little rubber ducky of the Ernie variety. And the rubber ducky, he takes the picture of the rubber ducky everywhere he goes. And that's his Instagram account is basically his rubber ducky, traveling the world. But this was on the train tracks at Auschwitz. And um, he posted it. He wrote a little message in Spanish, at which point the internet descended and called him all sorts of horrible things and said that he was an anti-Semite and that uh, he should apologize and go... Slink off forever. Here's the thing I want to talk to my chums, Lea and Stephanie, about. Is there really anything wrong with I, I? Maybe I'm going to lose my due card for this. Like maybe it's so obvious that you can't take a picture of a rubber ducky on the trade tracks at Auschwitz. We have had those stories before of like the pictures on Instagram of people whose children yes. are playing at the Holocaust. And War. The like, selfies. The yeah, selfies I mean, of like, look, here I am with like the gravestone of you know Schloimi whoever. That does seem to me wrong. I mean, it's not like. It doesn't make you a horrible person, but it's an error in judgment to be at some sort of memorial and that is, you know, a, a work of art that's been constructed to um, to honor the dead and then to, like, make it into this chipper little twee thing. But picture of rubber ducky at world historical location, even if world historical location of much sadness,
0: I, I, I don't see – I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the horror. So – it's kind of interesting if you scroll through this feed, it's basically the rubber ducky everywhere. Taj Mahal, Brandenburg Gate, St. Petersburg, like every iconic visual, you see that duck there.
2: Treblinka, Bergen Belsen, Canal. So, so look, I I
0: think I think the main thing is that this shows that like Auschwitz is part of the the canon of places. It's become such an iconic image that I get why someone will do this. You can almost divorce the reality of the place with the image of, you know, the, the just that famous visual of the train tracks. In some way, is that's good. But the downside of that is that you can really remove a lot of the emotion and importance of the site because you're just like, oh, I have to go see it and take a picture of it, just like I did at the Taj Mahal. It's weird to me. I'm not offended by it because I'm like I'm, part of me is like I'm kind of glad he went right. right like isn't it nice I that he, this was part of his itinerary I mean, I'm assuming well, this is a man but like when you
1: go you've been I don't think you've been I have never been have to never any been to death camp concentration kind of camp are you? deportation embarkment depot Uh I've never taken a train in Eastern Europe I've, I've lived none of the Holocaust experience at
2: all? Well, I know, I know that we have a very special episode. It all <laughs> awaits but, you. but here's here's the thing that that I think hits you when you visit it. Visiting it, definitely for someone whose family, you know, was slaughtered there. But I assume also for people who have no emotional connection to it is a completely overwhelming experience. I mean, for a human being to stand there and see the piles of shoes or the the, the death chambers, right, and, and understand what had happened there really takes this grand emotional toll. And I honestly see nothing wrong with finding one moment of levity, of humanity, of almost defiance, right, to say, like, we, we live on we don't desecrate the place we don't mock it in any way we don't turn it into kind of a farce but but we take we take like a second just to ourselves to do something that is maybe silly maybe not entirely appropriate but reminds us that life continues I don't know I, I'm I'm really not bothered by it
0: look I I'm also a little a little desensitized to all this given how many insane stories there have been like this given
2: um, given
1: what we do for a living I, I, look, it, <laughs> it takes a lot if, to if, shock if us this'
0: like great I actually am glad you're visiting this place and you're drawing a lot of attention to it because you probably Probably have a ton of followers on this feed who like to see this rubber ducky go everywhere.
2: Because the rubber ducky probably will get more people to learn about the Holocaust. I know.
1: Well, I think the other thing, the other thing in the background here is that the people many people who are concerned about this are people who are quite rightly concerned about the rising casualness with which anti-Semitism is treated and sort of mm-hmm. how I mean I was talking to a college undergraduate yesterday who was Jewish, who was saying, who was talking to me about a very painful conversation she had with a half Jewish, um, but Jewish identified when convenient for him, as she put it. Friends of hers, undergrad, who was basically saying, like, anti-Semitism is somewhat warranted because Jews do control the media, and we know that because of, you know, the way stories about Jews are reported, and they get so much more attention. And and this student I was telling you was quite troubled
2: that They, this, have, they have their podcasts and everything yeah, and their that, books and their live, shows.
1: Their live oh, right, shows. That logic
0: is insane. If Jews controlled the media, why would they want stories about themselves <laughs> reported more heavily? Whatever.
1: We're both nefarious and all-dominant and stupid. So... There is this, I think part of it here is we must put up guardrails against, you know, not this now. Like, you've come for us in the New York subways, you've come for us in Pittsburgh, but you've come for us in Poway, but like, really, the rubber ducky at Auschwitz. So it, it, there could be a well meaning attempt to try to push back and say, actually, there are some things that are still sacred. I just have to say, though, I'm looking at this picture and I'm just so, I just can't help but smile because the ducky is so,
0: so darn cute. I don't know. It's, it's... See
1: Hitler? You lost. <laughs> Rubber ducky lives on It would be better if the ducky were laying tefillin. Right. That would be like a no, true... No, but what if it
0: was like one of those like acidic du- right. like that would be offensive to me? I make. guess that
1: would be even worse well, if it was laying tefillin, that would be like
0: inside but knowledge. Don't have arms.
2: Duckies don't have
1: arms. Like
0: duckies have wings. <laughs> Little wings. <laughs> How do you even fit the, the filling around that?
2: I'm I'm sure Chabad could sort that out. Uh,
0: anyway. Moving on in News Here the We are.
1: Obviously we want to hear from you. Uh, where is it not appropriate to put uh, to take a, a picture of your rubber ducky? 914-570-4869. Leal, do you have a report from Israel? Anything going on there?
2: So much going on in Israel. Uh, first of all, in, in perpetual news, that's not really news. Still no government, but hey, we're doing well. Uh, in other other news. Uh, This morning, my mother was interrupted mid-salad making. Uh, by having to go to her her bomb uh, shelter to her, her bomb shelter right because uh there is a renewed uh, missile strike on various parts of Israel so you know none of that is out of the ordinary Israel
1: where they make salad for breakfast and
2: then have to take shelter which, which is by the way how you do it yeah, so how, I, how breakfast a civilized person ought to dream.
0: eat I will say that when you said she had to go to her bomb shelter I like my first thought was like is that her pant like is that her pantry like did she need an ingredient but no it's because of bombs
2: yes and getting you know a yorkshire terrier to a bomb shelter is not an easy task. But what's the news we really care about? that's not the news we care about at all. The news we care about is a new phenomenon, straight out of the Holy Land, from the people who brought you Waze and Gal Gadot comes (laughs) Greta shaming. Greta shaming. Uh, If you're at the office and there's a little coffee corner, uh, and in the coffee corner, instead of environmentally friendly wooden stirs or whatever, some people use plastic. If you can call them people. If you can even call them human beings. Uh, Next to the plastic utensils, people all over Israel have taken to placing little, (laughs) very angry photos of Greta Thunberg, the teenage Swedish environmental activist, with her catchphrase, how dare you? And it's become a thing. All over Israel, in offices, go buy the plastic, you're looking at angry Greta
0: like like greta? how yeah, greta greta is basically saying like how how dare you ruin this earth how dare us? you
2: ruin her childhood by you know, using a plastic stuff you know where they should here, put greta saying coffee?
1: how dare you is on the tracks at outfits
2: guy, next, i don't care about the juice choose to so the environmentally ducky. unfriendly that rubber duck is
0: rubber it isn't even recyclable
1: All right, time for a guest, I think. Time for a Jew of the Week. And what a Jew it is. He
0: is, as they say, a big Jew. I'm going to introduce him, and then he's going to come on up here, and then we're going to ask him a bunch of questions. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin is an American rabbi, lecturer, and best-selling author of more than 15 books, including the newly released, revised, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal. Most importantly, he is the father of our former unorthodox producer, Shira Telushkin. Please Welcome. welcome Rabbi Telushkin.
4: Welcome. I've done a number of interviews in my life. I don't think I've ever been as uncomfortable in anticipation of what's going <laughs> to happen. I have no idea what I'm going to be asked.
2: And okay. You mean you never march on stage to bringing sexy back before?
0: <laughs> That's his I opening find that hard song to believe. everywhere. Okay. Let's start easy. You know how, like, when you're a dentist and you see someone on the street and they're like, "Oh, oh, doctor, like." my tooth hurts or you're a, like a special type of doctor and someone will come up to you being like, I know you're not in the office right now, but like, c- you know, can you look at this like this mole? You are a very famous rabbi who is very recognizable. Do people come up to you on the streets with their like spiritual ailments?
4: Actually, yeah, not that infrequently. <laughs> no, people have a whole bunch of feelings and often complicated feelings about Judaism. No. <laughs> <laughs> Including the three people up here interviewing me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it really, I mean, now we should start thinking of some witty and funny thing no, that Well, like, Yeah, for instance, like what, what are they, what are like they. Like you're in
0: Zaybars you and someone like stops you? Well, no,
4: look, a lot of it is stuff you could almost expect and stuff that's inherently unanswerable, like the injustices in the world. How do you, you know, how do you believe in a God and allows that? And if anybody had the answer to that question, it would have long since been answered. Right. That's why we call it faith because it's <laughs> there is not an inherently compelling answer, and people know in advance, but it's always asked when something bad happens, as if it hasn't been asked. And obviously what's interesting is people have a tendency to ask it when something terrible has happened to them, but they didn't necessarily ask it when somebody thinks terrible had happened to somebody else before, you know, which is not that inherently logical. And we just have to accept there's free will in the world, and... We can't really define, you know, I got into a real argument with somebody once who said they'd prefer that there wasn't free will. I say, yeah, but that's changing the rules of the game in such a way, you know, that you can't really do it. So you can speak of a good dog, but when people speak of a good dog, they mean an obedient dog or a or, a sweet disposition dog. But a dog that was trained by the Nazis to attack prisoners is not an inherently evil dog and one that would attack anybody with a swastika we would like, but it's not because it's making a moral decision. Even though people do want to believe that their own pets somehow do really have oh, kind definitely. personalities. But usually, that's—I mean those are the questions that come up the most often. I mean, other, otherwise they were conventional questions. There was an inherent fascination people have with the Jewish customs surrounding death. And you really always get a lot of questions about that. And I suppose a lot of questions, because Judaism doesn't necessarily define it that easily, uh, a lot of questions about afterlife. Afterlife, yeah. To which I say, I don't think at this point I have the answer. By the time I have the answer, I'm not going to be here to be able to give it to you. (laughs) I think a lot of the questions that,
1: I mean, certainly a lot of the questions that my children have and a lot of the questions I have uh, have to do with how people treat each other. And the book you've revised, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, goes right into that. You first wrote this book, what, 20 years ago?
4: Yes, in 1996, and one of the reasons I know that I'm not a prophet is that when I wrote the book, I said I'm writing this because civil discourse in America can't get any worse. (laughs) I do want to acknowledge that at the time, uh, I had a dream. Uh, I wanted to introduce a national Speak No Evil Day in the United States, And I was able actually to get two senators to sponsor it as a resolution. One of them, you will not be shocked to learn, was Joe Lieberman. And the other, the Republican, was Connie Mack, a Republican senator from Florida. I mention that also for yet another reason. There actually was a time in the United States when you could imagine a Republican and a Democratic senator actually working on something together. And we did, but I then found out, subsequent to the resolution being introduced, to get a resolution like that passed, you basically have to have like 50 senators co-sponsoring it. I was a one-man band. I've thrown out the idea, I hope one day they'll do it like Hillel or Chabad, you know, all of whom are in all the states so they could easily get senatorial co-sponsors. Why would anyone not
1: sign on? to it? What was the idea? The idea was just a proclamation saying on a given day every year, and by the way, what day was it going to be?
4: I picked a day at random at the time, it was like May 16th or something, because I, I noticed for the next five years it was going to fall on weekdays and I wanted it to be on school days. And the idea was that... Every Gimel Tommos, no one speaks evil. Oh, Gimel, yeah. Also, you were talking, who was talking before about some Gedalia? We're all talking we about Som Gedali- Gedalia. We love Gedalia. our favorite <laughs> fast day. You know why? They tell a story about a man. They ask him, do you fast on some Gedalia? Some Gedalia, how many of you do not know what some Gedalia is?
1: Rabbi Hammerman.
4: <laughs> your congregants don't know the fifth most important fast day? <laughs> It falls on the day after Rosh Hashanah, when a man named Gedaliah ben Achikam was assassinated. He had been sort of appointed uh, as the governor after the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. And, actu- and a fast day was declared. The next time the actual Jewish leader of a state was assassinated like that, it was Yitzhak Rabin. But anyway, they asked the man if he fasted on some Gedalias. He said, no, I don't. And he said, why not? He said, I have three reasons. Now, it- you know, when you don't come prepared to tell a joke, you can really mess up a joke. Uh, So one is, he said, if Gedalia hadn't died then, he would have been dead by now anyway. (laughs) If I died, Gedalia wouldn't fast for me. (laughs) And if I don't fast on Yom Kippur, why should I fast on some (laughs) Gedalia? I want to ask you, though, apropos the the revised edition
2: of a book coming out. I thought about it a lot on the drive over here. It seems to be something kind of inherently uh, at odds about writing a book about Jewish ethics and then seeing a lot of our own societal mores and norms and the way we treat ethical conversations change a great deal. Right now we live in the era of you know Me Too and, and movements like that. Is there a moment in which you said like, well, yeah, that's exactly why we need a sort of unchanging religious principle so that the
4: North Star remains the same? Or do you kind of try to change your work to Okay, so there are two. Okay, so it's a really fair question. Uh, the underlying ethical principles remain the same, what constitutes fair speech, what doesn't. I revised it in part because the climate had gotten so much uglier and I wanted it to seem very relevant. Some of the examples I was giving from the past somehow didn't seem as shocking anymore, <laughs> so I wanted to do it. You know, And obviously the past presidential campaign, and I'm not coming down on one side or the other, people will choose to think of what they want, but there's been ugliness on both sides. The other reason was over the years, As a parent, I learned more about the significance of words that heal. So the real expansion of the modern edition, is actually just a tricky way to convince people who already own the book why they need to buy the revised edition. (laughs) But what I really did was very much that issue. I realized... It would be a terrible thing if all we had was the capacity of words to hurt. So there has to be a compensatory capacity. And since we're talking about Shira and Shira's sister Naomi, I have one of the stories there about the importance of learning how to apologize. That when you apologize, you have to accept full responsibility. We lived for two years in Boulder, Colorado. At the time, uh, Shearer was three and Naomi was five. And I was giving a speech on the ethics of speech uh, in the Denver community. And uh, Naomi and Shearer said, Daddy, we want to go to your speech. Uh, uh, No, they were four and six. It's relevant to the story. And I knew it was going to be over their heads. And so I, I said, I don't think you're going to really like it. And they said, we really want to come. So of course they came. I'm a very proud father. There was a big crowd. It wasn't quite as big as this, but probably about 300 people. And so we come in, and I introduce them both, and they stand up in the front row, and everybody gives them big applause, and they sit back down. Ten minutes into the speech, I ask the audience, how many of you grew up in a household where somebody's bad temper had a bad effect on the house? <laughs> Among the hands that go up in the front row. <laughs> It was, you know, if you're laughing the way you're laughing now, you can imagine how people were laughing with those two little kids, you know, standing up there. So finally, I said the only thing I could say. Unfortunately, my wife has a terrible temper. <laughs> but, what had, but what had really happened was, Naomi was in the first grade, and it was a newly established school, and it wasn't working out quite as well as we wanted, so I was teaching her how to read. According to my wife, I am very patient the first time I explain something to someone, And according to my wife, I am very patient. The second time I explain something, and according to my wife, for the third time, I can start getting snappy. So I had been snapping a bit at Naomi. So after the speech, I went to her. I said, I want you to know when you make a mistake, you're not doing it to be bad. And for me to get angry is really wrong. And I apologize. And if I do it in the future, I want you to say to me, Daddy, you're not supposed to do that. Which she started saying, which was extremely irritating. (laughs) But, But the truth is... But I always say, if you're going to apologize, you have to accept full responsibility. You know, imagine if I had actually said to them, and Naomi, I really am sorry, but you have to admit it's really irritating when you (laughs) keep, you know, and you take it all away. There's a wonderful story. How many of you, just call out, I assume many people will know, who was the first Jew ever appointed to the Supreme Court? Yeah, Louis Brandeis. And, you know, we associate Supreme Court nominations now with, uh, you know, real controversies and close votes. And throughout most of American history, that wasn't the case. It was an overwhelming both parties would come together, but Brandeis's really did stir up a lot of controversy. He won I forget what it was, but it was like 55 to 40, or you know, or it was a very close vote. And six former presidents of the American Bar Association came out. And those were really not political. You know, political correctness, which I think can go overboard, but then there was really no political correctness. And people would say what they wanted. One of the opponents, though, was not an anti-Semite. It was the former President Taft. But he denounced Brandeis. He says he'll bring in the worst sort of hypocrisy. And, and uh, he's a man with no scruples. And he didn't go in for the Jewish baiting part of it. Three years later, Brandeis was taking a walk at night. And he used to take a walk in the evenings after dinner. And lo and behold, he runs into President Taft. And Taft says... Mr. Brandeis, a few years ago I did you a terrible injustice, and I just want you to know I deeply apologize. It ended the conflict, because the first thing is, when one side takes a full acknowledgement, and think about it, people in your own lives who you might be angry at, if they fully acknowledge, and the damage they did you, you know, I don't know how Brandeis would have reacted if, let's say, Taft had really succeeded, and he <laughs> had not, you know, it's harder. it's like Joseph and his brothers. You know, Joseph forgives his brothers in Egypt, but if he was still working there as a slave in a miserable life, I don't know if he would have forgiven them so easily. But anyway, Taft was the only ex-president who then was subsequently appointed to the court. He became a chief justice, and in his papers there's a letter he wrote to his daughter. He said, Brandeis and I still have disagreements, but I have so come to appreciate him. He's one of the people I really have such affection for. So the first step is to think, if you hurt somebody, apologize, and once you, the apologizer, takes full responsibility, it actually enables the other person to not respond defensively, and usually, they'll take at least some measure of the responsibility. Yeah, they'll meet you halfway. Yeah. yeah or, let, me,
2: let me shine yes. a little
4: bit more darkness into this wonderful
2: vision. that. Why you
4: know, if I had to predict which of the three of you would bring in more <laughs> darkness? Okay, so I'm looking here. Yeah. He shines years. darkness. That's right.
2: Over the last three years, part of the way that I've personally uh, dealt with everything that goes on around us, which you've referred to, uh, Whiskey. Was, was bourbon uh, or scotch, but also uh, to really kind of become very serious about religion, uh, in part because it sort of offered this kind of comfort and consolation of something that I knew to be eternal and true. Do you have moments uh, as someone who is sort of straddling very publicly the line between, you know, being a public intellectual and being a rabbi, in which he said, I want no longer want any part of this. I want to retreat as deep as I can into my faith and my tradition and have nothing to do with all this around me. Don't want to talk to people, don't want to write, just want to And I
4: don't want to go into the issue of not wanting to talk to people. I, I, because I've spent my life writing a lot of books, I, I've come to understand, I'm an extrovert in an introverted profession. And so it would really be hard. I need to go out, I need to. Me too. Yeah.
1: Yeah? Okay, exactly. good. No, I get it. It's like shit. I got to write three hours today. What I want to do is schmooze.
4: Yeah, the problem right. I have as a rabbi, I can't say it exactly the way you said it. Yeah, but uh, uh, you yeah. mean you can't say schmooze? schmooze. No, no. <laughs> it's very no. It's very hard to do that. But yes, there. Uh, you you pinpoint an interesting things. Yeah, you want to sometimes just sort of retreat. I know my daughter Shira, did one of her papers at Harvard Divinity exactly on like modern monastic movements which is loved off and not necessarily just Catholics you know of people who sort of want and she, I forget the names of the people who just sort of wanted to go into retreat from the world. I actually used to be much more interested in politics when I was a kid when I think back the first I'm seventy now. Well, you got into this with the Soviet Jewry fight, wasn't that yes. when you really went public with this sort of became a public figure for the first time? Yes, that yeah, that's very much dominated me. But I remember I was twelve years old when John Kennedy was elected president. And I remember, I actually knew the members of every one of the members of his cabinet. First of all, now it's hard to keep up with all the cabinet members (laughs) because they they don't stay in that long. No, but I actually knew, you know, I knew it all, and and I don't have that same level of interest. I suppose to some extent it emanates out of some despair. Also, how much will it really change?
1: Why are people so basically decent to each other in person and so horrible to each other on the Internet?
4: I think we all know the reason. The Internet gives people a cloak of anonymity. And, uh, but even
1: when they're not anonymous, they will be mean to people
4: on the internet. Who, if they saw them on the street, they won't. There's something about the—is it about the distance? Is it? Well, it's the distance. And when you see somebody, unless you're really a pretty awful person, when you see someone, you see their humanity. You also see it becomes harder to make terrible generalizations about other groups. You know, which is a common thing that people do, because when you meet somebody, you, you can't just define them. Uh, by that group, so I don't know. Like the people who who commonly use the expression to Jew someone down, you know. I don't know how many how many Jews they actually know. I mean, this is the argument for getting to know people from other groups. It doesn't fully uh, protect it. By the way, the interesting thing you guys were all talking about that can people can Jews use such expressions amongst themselves, and I think we don't. Though we do know that in the early evolution of the very unpleasant term kike it was sometimes used by the german jews against the eastern european jews but the only group today that i think it thrives among and you know and for reasons that people like president obama hate it is we know that in a certain type of black culture they will use the n word and, I, and he, uh, you know, he understandably is very horrified by it because it also grants a legitimacy uh, for people to think. And also I once had a very sad experience about the usage of words. Did any of you uh, familiar with a, a black comic, D.H. Yeah. 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 So strangely enough, uh, I was once speaking in St. Louis and I was speaking about the subject words that hurt words that heal. And my wife and I, we have cousins in St. Louis, we went out to a, a hotel there. And we're just sitting in the lobby getting drinks. And we see there's a guy surrounded by a gr- big group. And my wife's not shy. And she goes over and starts speaking uh, to Yugli, who is there. And he's very friendly. And suddenly my wife's signaling to me to come over. <laughs> she had told him what I had been speaking about. And he started asking me about these Jewish laws of ethical speech. You're not supposed to say anything about somebody negative unless the person to whom you're speaking needs the information. You know, and Yugli left. And he said, that would put me totally out of business. And uh, it, we really got along very nicely, and he told me he was performing in New York, and he, and he gave us tickets and told us to come backstage. So there were about 1,500 people there. He had really controversial sort of humor, but the guy was funny and clearly very smart. And we go backstage afterwards, and it was what you'd expect. He had like five people working for him. Four of them were fellow blacks. The one white guy was his accountant. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, we're talking about prejudice and other things. And I said to them at one point, what percentage of white people do you think when they're amongst themselves use the N-word? And to my shock, they said 85 to 90%. (laughs) And I actually, I had tears in my eyes. I said, imagine to go around thinking that you're so hated. I said, you don't hear the term at all. I mean... Or so rarely, but this is what happens. It's like, I remember, I grew up in the aftermath of the Holocaust, and I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of Jews who were survivors, and, you know, you can imagine what you would often hear said about non-Jews, and there was, you know, a terrible elevation, and and, and it was sad. By the way, strangely enough, you know who...
1: uh, I have to tell you, I thought the Hughley story was going to end with you saying... What percentage of white people do you know who are Jewish accountants? <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought he was going to be lived in an all-Jewish accountant world. His agent, his accountant, Yeah, his yeah right. Like... My father was the Rebbe's accountant. That's right. <laughs> so
0: so you wrote a book about the Rebbe. Yes. And we were getting a lot of texts being like, Rabbi Tolishkin, ask him about the Rebbe.
2: Every Chabadnik we know is like, oh, I hear you talking to Rabbi Tolishkin, you have to ask about the Rebbe, <laughs> which, which we love to do because, you know, I carry a photo of him in my... Wallet,
4: he's someone who's hugely influential. And, I'll tell you a and few who things. who is he? Okay, I'll tr- I, can an- I can't answer it very briefly, but I will, it'll be shorter than if I gave a summary of the 613 commandments. Okay, <laughs> the Rebbe, of course, was the seventh Rebbe of Chabad, and I remember when I was a kid growing up, I knew more about Chabad than most people, because as I mentioned, my father was the accountant, and my grandfather had a very close uh, relationship with the Rebbe, but I would never have predicted in the 1950s that Chabad was going to become, it was going to be more than a really peripheral movement. Instead, of course, it became this incredibly strong movement. One of the things that struck me when I was writing the book about the Rebbe was the depth of love that he really did have, particularly for Jews. But it, was, it went beyond the Jewish community. There's this wonderful story. The first black woman who was ever elected to Congress was Shirley Chisholm who represented bed and also parts of Crown Height and in 1968 when she was elected the House of Representatives was still dominated the leadership positions by Southern Democrats because they would tend to get elected for 30-40 years because there was effectively then no Republican Party and they were uh, still racist so they take Shirley Chisholm from bed and they put her on the Agriculture Committee leading one New York newspaper to headline it, a tree grows in Brooklyn. (laughs) And she was very upset. She's very public about upset. She wanted to be in a labor committee. She wanted to be in education. And she gets a call from Rabbi Chodakov, who was the Rebbe's closest aide. And he said, the Rebbe would like to see you. She was actually his representative. And, you know, politicians would always come into the Rebbe to get a blessing. He would never endorse a specific candidate. So he comes to see her. He says, I understand you're very insulted. She said, I'm outraged. I went there. I wanted to do something in labor. I want to do something in education. They put me on this committee. And the Rebbe said, God has given you a challenge and an opportunity. You know how much extra food is grown every year in the United States? Find a creative way to do it. She arrives in Congress. Her first day in Congress, she meets the newly elected Republican senator from Kansas, Bob Dole and Dole was very worried about farmers in Kansas who were producing more food that they could sell. Food was getting destroyed, they were losing money, and together they play a key role in expanding food stamps. Then she goes on to help found WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. Nobody knows this story until 15 years later when a retirement breakfast is made for her in Congress, and she tells that whole story. She said, if poor children have more food today, it's because that rabbi in Crown Heights had a vision. So you know right away you're dealing with a with a different sort of figure. The Rebbe also had another technique that I thought was great. I call it in my book "How to Disagree Without Being Disagreeable." He would never attack someone by name. He he said, "Anima." He said, "I speak about shitot, I speak about approaches. I don't speak about individuals." And it was a very remarkable feature. So. He had real disagreements with people. One rabbi once wrote him a nasty letter, was furious at him about something. He writes back to the rabbi, well, there are still 612 areas on which we agree.
3: You know, he (laughs) would hold
4: on to the symbolic... Uh, but it was a real—and I, in researching the Soviet Jewry thing, when I was speaking about Chabad, about doing the book, I said I had some real disagreements with the Rebbe. One of them was he had favored quiet diplomacy on the Soviet Jewry issue, and I favored very—I'm putting him on my—you know, he took that position, I took this position. He was on a slightly higher plane than me. But I was— uh, I, since there might be Chabadniks in the office, I will say he was on a higher plane than me. I'm not going to say he was on a slightly higher. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw an example where he gave a biting speech, very upset about a position one of the Soviet Jewry leaders had taken, but he never gave the man's name. And six months later, he was able to work together with that person. And it is so hard increasingly to imagine uh, in a, in the United States with the horrible things that people are saying that people will find a way to work together. That's the reason I am so committed to this whole thing of different types of language because it fuels such a hatred and that really was one of the things that so profoundly impressed me about the Rebbe. He was totally into the use of positive language. Uh, he, he would say, hefe instead of calling something evil he'd say it's the opposite of good. And you know almost to a humorous extent a man came to the Rebbe very despondent, very upset and on top of everything else he said you know, and his son had moved away from Judaism and he you know, he sort of hit his hand against his head. You know what they say, Es is fair Yid, it's hard to be a Jew. So the Rebbe said, Now, I'm curious, do you often use that expression? And the man said, Well, it is hard to be a Jew. So the Rebbe said, So why do you surprised your son doesn't want to be a Jew? What about <laughs> if you said, "Es is good, Yid, It's good to be a Jew. He was so committed. To to the use of that language, you would know because you grew up in Israel. What do they call handicapped soldiers in Israel? Do you know the expression? Nechetsal. Yeah, nechetsal, which means the handicapped Sal. 1976, three years after uh, the Six Day War, a group of uh, nechetsal, handicapped soldiers from Sal, obviously referring to soldiers who had suffered injuries that could not fully be corrected, they show up in New York, in part to give them a good time, in part to go to meet with specialists. But they do ask to see the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, I know that they call you Nechei tzah. It It's one of the rare times, that, if you can look it up, it's one of the rare times the Rebbe gave a speech in, in Hebrew, and he was apologetic because he had a very thick Ashkenazic accent, which could be hard for them to understand. So He spoke very slowly, but he said, I know in Israel they call you the handicapped soldiers of Tsal. He said... It's also known that people who have handicaps often develop compensatory abilities. If you Google and go online to people who paint without hands, using brushes in their teeth or brushes in their toes, you'd be shocked at the quality of paintings you would see. And certainly we know that uh, blind people develop compensatory... They'll notice things, not that they hear better than us, but they'll notice things we don't. So the Rebbe said, why do they have to call you Nechetzal, which defines you only by what you can't do? Why can't they call you Metsuya the exceptional ones, and define you by, by what you do? And I remember I had once read an account of World War II army veterans who had been badly hurt, and one of them had lost both arms. And the day before he was released from an army rehabilitation hospital, the doctor in charge there in a form of tough love said, today you're army heroes, next year you're, you're handicapped army veterans, and by the third year you're just going to be cripples. You know, what a different message Mm. to send people out into the world with. So this was the aspect of the Rebbe, the extraordinary message of optimism. And I remember somebody who probably politically wouldn't be on the same page as the Rebbe, but I remember a very smart line I once saw in Thomas Friedman. He said, pessimists are probably right more often than optimists, but only optimists accomplish something. As we say
2: in Yiddish, inshallah.
4: Inshallah. Joseph, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. This was great. Thank you.
0: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st.
2: Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you
1: to call or write? To the mailbox. Uh, we got a lot on the J. Michelson-Liel Leibovitz conversation, the convo, uh, the summit. Uh, We were so pleased to do that. We were so pleased that you all enjoyed it. I'm very grateful for this idea. I think it was a perfect idea. It was a really, really nice conversation. conversation. Dear Unorthodox, a listener writes, in last week's episode, Liel says in the discussion, basically that tribalism is a fact of life. There's no hope for a peaceful conclusion to the Arab-Israeli conflict. My favorite rejoinder to this is to note that when I was coming of age in the 70s and 80s, there were two hopeless conflicts going on in the world, Northern Ireland and South Africa. In both cases, different tribes were in seemingly endless conflict with no solution in sight. And then... They made peace in Northern Ireland, which has endured, and they made a peaceful transition in South Africa that has endured. Love the show. Dan Tarlin, Sharon, Massachusetts. I have to say, when I was listening, that was also my set, my my thought. Uh, Dear Unorthodox, just a quick note to say that I listened to Jay Michelson and Liel's episode today. It was fantastic. There's at least one spinoff podcast there. First idea for a spinoff podcast, Jay and Liel spent five seasons working through their original list of questions at the same pace as this episode. <laughs> Second idea for a spin-off, Mark makes a different intellectual shidduch, a different match, every week. Yours, Daniel Serviansky. Daniel, I'll leave it to Jay and Liel to decide how much more time they want to spend together. In terms of making a different intellectual shidduch every week, uh, there aren't that many shidduchim that would be as good as this one. I can't think of another. But if you have ideas— uh, There are
2: many we- reasons why this conversation was great, but I think one of which is that really we both come to it from the same— Kind of point of view, which is which is like kind of a religious outlook on life. We're not political knife fighters. We're, we're you know two believers whose whose faith brought them to two very different kind of vantage points, and and but we share the kind of common ground of belief.
0: Yeah, there's it's funny because there's so much you disagree on, but there's m- so much you fundamentally agree on right. about your. And also,
2: get about yeah. how the other person feels and acts.
0: Like I actually don't want to listen to that conversation with other people. There's something about that. I think to credit to you, Mark, that um. There was the magic in the match. And I think I know we can read the rest of the mailbox, but here's my letter. There was a ton of, of feedback in the Facebook group, all of it, I think, positive just about how interesting this conversation was. I think it really elucidated a lot of your views, Liel, to listeners who might not actually know how you feel about a lot of things, because I think you sort of play the like gun-toting conservative <laughs> on the show, but you never actually interrogate or or, or really, we don't discuss right. our politics. It's sort of more of a caricature. And so I think a lot of people are were maybe a little bit confused about where you actually stand on a lot of things. Do you? Here you speak honestly and sort of passionately about what it is that, about your belief system and and sort of how your f- religious life fits into your political life, I think was actually something people wanted to hear.
2: I totally get that. But really, if, if I had to take or carry something from this conversation, it really is the fact that a conversation like this is possible, which we, you know, oddly, stupidly lose sight yeah. of when we spend so much of our time and energy shouting at one another on Twitter or Facebook or even in real life. The idea that you could have a respectful conversation that's not just civil or polite, but that's actually really engaged, right? And then the idea that this is what community is about, right? Community is not about just kind of uh, surrounding yourself with a small cluster of people who you agree with on everything. It's about being in a space uh, with other people who are like you, but have ideas and opinions that really you can't freaking stand or understand or upset you. That's how you work through
1: it. Dear Unorthodox team, I am a 23-year-old law student born and raised in Vienna, Austria, a very Catholic country. I was raised Catholic, attending a private Catholic school. I'm fascinated by Judaism, but I just feel awfully guilty about the Holocaust. I feel close to Judaism and might consider it one day when I know more about it to convert if this is possible in Vienna. But at the same time, I feel like as an Austrian, the Jews wouldn't want me because they would view me as evil and I can't even blame them. How do you think about this and how would you approach this? Kind regards. Christine.
0: One, you're already in law school, so you're basically like on the way there. Though, I also, Christine,
2: also, though, if you think that other
1: Jews yes, may not like yes. you, you're uh,
0: like 80% like, there. Though, to be fair,
1: Austrian law school isn't quite as Jewish as NYU. <laughs> like. um,
0: Cardoza, But um, it is interesting, though, are, the way you're interrogating your own feelings about all of this, that sort of agonizing searching, mm-hmm. that is real. That would serve you well along your journey to Judaism, if that is the course that you do decide to take. I also don't think people are going to be like,
1: no. Look, if some Jews are assholes to you, that's part of the experience. Some Jews, Ju- right. some Jews
2: are assholes to us. I also think for a lot of Jews, like an Austrian, uh, that's yeah. like that's a that's a trophy right there. Can you
0: imagine anything Jews would love more than like to know that this Aust like and you could have your conflicting feelings about about Austria and Austrians? Like that is actually so rich and profound. Jews would love you. Yeah,
2: you're two weeks away from a book contract. Thanks
1: for the letter. Seriously, these letters really really move us. We're so excited to get international mail. Finally, to the listener line.
5: Hello, J. Crew. My name is Aaron Grosser. I'm a practicing Catholic, but have been having an affair, so to speak, with Judaism since I first traveled to Israel at 16. And 11 years later, the spark turned into flame in the wake of the massacre at Tree of Life, which then led me to find an Orthodox. And I've been an avid listener ever since. As I've become more and more open about my love for Jewish faith, I continue to find friends and even two of my 12 siblings who feel a similar spark. I can't help but wonder if this is not just a cultural interest, but a yearning in my heart for my soul to find its way home. I would love some advice for a person who is continuing to feel more and more out of place in the Catholic Church and constantly feeling drawn closer to this truth that I seem to be reaching for. Thank you, Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, for the amazing work that you do. Much love from Greenville, Tennessee. Welcome to the conversation.
1: We are so <laughs> excited I don't I don't know what so three of the twelve Grozer siblings have had Are you curious? Have had flirtations with, maybe even have gone to first base with Judaism. <laughs> That's fascinating. I mean I guess if you have enough kids, the odds are Three of them are
2: going to end up Jewish. <laughs> that's
1: right. That's a strong batting average. I don't know what the scene is like in Greenville, Tennessee and who there is to talk to. I mean, you didn't say if you've gone to services at a synagogue or taken a class at the JCC or something, but get to know some people who are a couple steps further down the path in terms of their thinking or their observance. But look, if all you want to do is watch Jewy stuff on Netflix and like read some books, that's be a Gertoshav, be a righteous Gentile among us, you know?
0: You know, we've heard that conversion courses tell people to listen to our podcast, which I love. They also offer like l- lists of books and movies, and I want people to send those to us. Yeah. I mean, we could make our own, but I'm I'm curious about like what it is that you're you're supposed to watch. Is it Schindler's List? Is it Seinfeld? And also, I want someone in Greenville, Tennessee, who's listening right now to to write in and say like, I will meet him. Yeah, know? can we
1: get a a Shabbat dinner or just a yeah. cof- a coffee date Even
0: nearby? Anyone? I don't know. I don't know geography, but what, yeah. any cities near <laughs> Greenville, Tennessee? It's so
2: fascinating though, because really, y- y- you know, I have a little bit of a side thing with Catholicism which is a religion I'm fascinated by. That's true. I think that there's a real emotional, intellectual, spiritual bind between these two particular forms of faith. So it, it doesn't surprise me in the least that someone who's connected to his faith becomes <laughs> my curious uh, about <laughs> us. Um, the thing that I would add is, uh, I think, Aaron, for you, just from the little you've given us, I think the path in might actually be, you know, less cultural, experiential, and, and maybe even more theological. I mean, question those fundamental differences. I mean, it really kind of comes down to, like, the, the man, the, the, the God. Figure, JC. JC. Jesus. Uh, and if this is something that you could kind of contemplate, if this is something that you could grab, with uh, if you could make this theological shift then maybe you found a new home you know i've had points and as deeply rooted and 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 crazy proud as i am of my judaism i did play this game but like yeah, what if I was a Catholic? I, I just can't do it. I mean, the spiritual leap is just a step too far for me. I, nothing in me is ready to make that acceptance, and everything in me feels very much at home where I am. But maybe, Aaron, it's different for you.
1: But look, we really do want to hook you up with someone near where you live. I hope people reach out to us. We will make the shidduch. It'd be great to get you coffee date, Shabbos dinner, martini, uh, what have you. And of course, all of you, whatever it is that you want to reach out to us for, 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our Gentile of the week is Farooq Kathwari. He is the chairman and chief executive officer and president of Ethan Allen, and he is the author of the book Trailblazer, From the Mountains of Kashmir to the Summit of Global Business and Beyond. Please welcome Mr. Kathwari. So the first thing is uh, thank you for the free donations to our audience. They're very excited for their chaise long.
3: thank you, yeah.
0: So okay, you are the CEO, chairman, and president of Ethan Allen. How's it looking here? Like, you're on a chair, we have a coffee table, you're in a pew. Like, what, what is your honest appraisal of well, Temple Bethel? You know,
3: honestly, I was expecting Ethan Allen chairs. <laughs> it's the but least it's all right. Died, but. Yes, right.
0: Are you, like, a when you go somewhere, are you always looking at sort of the, the appointings of, of, the, of a home or an office?
3: Well, I cannot help it, you know, because uh, this is what I do every day. I look at, when I came in here, I look at the lights, I look at the, the carpeting, I look at uh, uh, all your furnishings, then I look at the people.
1: <laughs> you came to the United States at 20? I was 20, yes. Why? Tell us that story.
3: I, br- I grew up in Kashmir, a beautiful land, great mountains, but it's also, as you, as you know, an area of conflict. And in fact, unfortunately, it has become even somewhat more in the last few weeks. So our family got involved with in this conflict. When I was about four and a half years old, our family got divided. My father and three of us were on one side, and my mother and one brother and sister got separated from us. So we became sort of refugees, even though my father was you know, well-to-do, our family was well-to-do. You know, Kashmir was divided between India and Pakistan. You know, we are from what is called the Valley of Kashmir. And at 15, I went back to the valley, and my main occupation was sports. I was a captain of the cricket team. I know many of you most probably know cricket, but it's a great, great He's game.
2: Baseball that lasts three days instead of three
3: hours. <laughs> all right, it's More a great game. And anyway, there was an event where there's a tremendous amount of issues that that took place, and I was playing cricket in, in India, in Delhi, and I came uh, back on a plane, and sitting next to me was an American. So I asked him, why are you going to Kashmir with tremendous amount of problems? He said, I'm a journalist from the Washington Evening Star, and I want to cover this. And I said, well, you know, there are 2 million people in the streets. Out of the population at that time, maybe 4, 4.5 million. And how are you going to get around? He said, well, I don't know. I said, I'll take you around. I shouldn't have said that. And, of course, I took him around for 4 or 5 days, and he then... Things settled down. He went back. And then about a month, a month and a half later, he gave me a name. I got a call and he said, I'm Howard Schaefer and I'm a diplomat in the U.S. Embassy. And I haven't told you you're the best person to take somebody around. <laughs> my, my grandfather, the head of the family, said never, ever meet an American. But of course I did. I took him around, got into more trouble. And then both of them helped. And there were other factors too. So at age 20, I ended up from, the, from these beautiful mountains to beautiful Brooklyn, and... Uh, we call it making Aliyah. Well, you know, <laughs> I lived in Flatbush, and in fact, you know, talking of Brooklyn, I had, I thought I had not met any Jewish people I did not know, because in the mountains, we were not knowledgeable about all the problems of the Middle East and all those things. Later on, of course, I found out that Howard Schaefer was Jewish. And when I came in, in Brooklyn, I met a great family, the Levy family, and they sort of adopted me.
1: I know the Levy's. You
3: did? Yeah, so Jerry Levy, Mimi Levy, and the kids. And it was there that I also, I got admission to NYU Business School, but I needed a job. I had no experience, so I saw an ad, uh, it said bookkeeper needed. So I asked my class fellows, what does a bookkeeper do? Because I'd never seen even in a calculator. They said, don't apply. But I went and I convinced them, it's a long story, but I convinced them that I know bookkeeping and I got the job. And <laughs> so I went to NYU Business School because you could do that so night. So you just faked it as a bookkeeper until you made it? I mean, that's, uh, that's right, yeah. That's no, but I was helped. This was a small little printing company printed envelopes by Richard King and Jesse Isaacson, again, nice Jewish people. It just happened that when I went there, he opened up a ledger and there was a calculator, hand-operated calculator. So he looked at me, he said, can you foot the books? So I was looking at my feet, I said, uh, <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, what's it in English? So he said, well, where have you learned bookkeeping? So I had to, you know, be, to make something up. I said, in England. The only thing in England I had done was change a plane. <laughs> and so fortunately for me, you know, luck has to be part of it. They bought this, Jesse Addison, Richard King said, we have an appointment to go somewhere, can you come back? I said, I'll wait, and there was this lady, her name was Sally, those days called Gal Friday, and A printed the envelopes in the back. So she was looking at me and said, "You know anything about bookkeeping? I said, nothing, but I need a job. (laughs) So she gave me a 45-minute tutorial, and when these people came, they said, what do you think of the books? I said, they need work. (laughs) So I got a job, $1.75 an hour. To, to leap forward in time a little
1: bit, you do a lot of interfaith work. You're, you're um, the, the co-chairman of the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council of the American Jewish Committee. Did you have a strong Muslim identity growing up? We
3: did not. Um, I mean, we were, basically Kashmir was 90% Muslim. Islam to Kashmir came in the sixth, seventh centuries, and it was mostly, it was almost all spread by the Sufis that came to Kashmir. So it's a little, somewhat of a different perspective. A lot of shrines. So we did not, when we were growing up, like, for instance, go to a mosque every, every week. It was rare we went, but we were taught we about Islam. My father, my mother especially, who happens to be, by the way, now, she lives in the Hebrew home in Riverdale. Wow. If somebody had said 60 years back that a mother would end up in the Hebrew home in Riverdale, it would like crazy. And I'm the trustee of the Hebrew home. Wow.
1: She's teaching them all cricket, right?
3: Well, you know, it's amazing... So our mother, my mother and father, we taught especially my mother, they said, again and again, the word Islam means submission, and the word Muslim means a person who submits. And you submit to God, and God equals goodness, so they said, just submit to goodness.
1: That's all we were taught. What about now? Are you still, what's your relationship to, I mean, I'm asking you the questions we ask each other pretty much every week on the show. The
3: same thing, exactly. I have discussed this many, many times, even in the the White House, even once the Israeli ambassador had invited me along with others to talk about religion. I said, I need 30 seconds. They were shocked and I tell them exactly what I just said because we have made religion so complicated all religions. That's Talushkin's fault. He needs 800 but pages to do But I'm just telling you, you know, we've made it too complicated. It's not that complicated. In fact, I was just sitting there while I was listening, I picked up the book, one of your prayer books, turned the last few pages, and there are prayers from the various religions, from the Sikhs, the Jains, the Christian. If you read them, they all say we've got to treat people with dignity, we've got to be good people, we've got to have peace. I don't know why people are fighting.
0: Amen. Back to Ethan Allen, um, <laughs> how did you end up there?
3: In Kashmir, playing sports, I ended up studying English Literature and Political Science while my family thought I was going to be a doctor or an engineer, what most people were doing that. But I was in sports. So when I came, I got admission at NYU Graduate School of Business. I was not fully qualified, but I did. And <laughs> so I got a student advisor and he said, what do you like to study? I said, I don't know. He said, how about accounting? So I, so I went to the first, I was about a month late to classes. There were debits, credits, I said, no, it's a headache. Then he said, about economics, I said, okay. I went in there and this was microeconomics, graphs, charts, I said, no. <laughs> then he said, about marketing, I said, I never heard the word, I said, what is it? He said, it's convincing people to buy and sell and, c-. I said, that I can do. <laughs> so I studied marketing, but I was working now as a bookkeeper and my grandfather... And my Wait, father. are you by this point a real bookkeeper? Are you still a fake bookkeeper? No, I was pretty good. And in four months, I doubled my salary. Wow. And I got to tell you one thing also I learned. That this Jesse and Richard King, they were always used to argue. Now, I was in sports. I had cricket teams. I had, you know always arguing. So finally, I said, no, I'm a little 20, 20 plus something. And they looked much older. And, you know, when somebody's even 40, he looks much older. They always our always argue and... So one day I said to them, I said, you know, I've been listening to, you. you argue all the time. What's the problem? Maybe I can help you. So they looked at me, said, you? I said, Yep. Well, they said, "This today we are discussing the, how much of money we can get from petty cash. I said, I'm the bookkeeper, I know. Each one of you should get $100 and I should get 10 <laughs> So they looked at me, said, why 10 I said, I'm giving advice. <laughs> so I learned two things common sense is very important and asking something for yourself is also important but as an immigrant there's there's something that is really touching to me about the fact that a fellow immigrant
2: uh, is now in charge of this company that is really seen as like one of the paragons of like american taste of like a certain kind of you know, upper middle class refinement do you stop to
3: think about this about the sort of like i'm i'm this
2: you know cricket player from kashmir look at me no i
3: got to tell you this see when i came and landed in queens then went to Brooklyn. My biggest shock was the next day, I was told I've got to go underground to take a subway. In Kashmir you go underground and don't come out. (laughs) So I said, what? I really felt bad. But the next two days I saw people around. I said, they are no different. I had seen Americans in the Hollywood movies or the cowboy movies, but I, I see none of those in the subways or others. I said, I am one of them. And I also came from an area of conflict. I, when I took those journalists around and the diplomat, they arrested me. I went to jail. I saw in America, that does not happen, you're a free person, nobody is watching you. So I became, I said to myself, I'm no different. See, a lot of people who come from many places, they continue to think that somehow their home is somewhere else. In America, you come, and to me, I said, this is my home. And that was it. Now, certainly, I have great association with Kashmir. But going back to your question about Ethan Allen, <laughs> was this, that when I was working at this uh, printing company, my grandfather and father made a very important decision to help me by sending me 12 wicker baskets full of arts and crafts. They were in the business of arts and crafts in Kashmir. So I said, what do I do with them? Where do I keep them? And anyway... I printed, of course, with the printing company, Kashmir Products Limited, PO Box, Wall Street Station, because NYU Business School was near Wall Street. I said, where do I sell him? So our marketing class had received a lecture from Marvin Traub, who was a chairman and CEO of Bloomingdale's, a very well-known merchant. I called his office 10, 12 days every day that I have something very important to discuss. First day, they said, you know, he's busy. I kept on calling, finally they got tired and asked me to come. So I took six or seven items there. He got you know, called a the merchant, they looked at it, he said they were very good, and placed an order. So Bloomingdale's became a customer. So I have Bloomingdale's, why not Lord and Taylor's? Why not others? So All of a sudden now, I was doing bookkeeping, selling my arts and crafts, and going to school at night. And after bookkeeping, uh, the people, this Jesse Isaacs and Richard King said, after a year, I didn't realize it, they said NYU Business School is near Wall Street why don't you get a job on Wall Street? I said, I'm studying marketing. And what would I tell them? They said, tell them you want a job as a financial analyst. (laughs) (laughs) So so now, you know, I'm 21 or so. So I went to the first building on Wall Street, one Wall Street, walked up, and those of you know, it's called at that time called the Irving Trust building. And on the 16th floor, I convinced and got a job with Bear Stearns (laughs) as a junior financial analyst. (laughs) So then I had to learn. I'm sorry, On the off chance. Do you want to be president? <laughs> <laughs> we can use that. Well, you know, so now I'm in business. I'm at Bear Stearns. And my, you know, personality was such that I would list, listen to some of these big broker I mean, uh, traders. There was a big, big, you know, big, big company. And I would go to them, I don't understand, Mr. Lowe, why you're doing this. Said, you know, what, what are you telling me that I, you don't understand? Anyway, a year later... I was recruited by a new firm being established by the Rothschilds, the European Rothschilds. And they had set up a $100 million fund and they needed the portfolio manager needed a junior financial, or senior financial, or middle financial <laughs> analyst. So I got the job. So it was there, and coming to Ethan Allen, that one of my associates, Roger Widman, he li- lives in Westchester. Was my associate said, you know, I know the founder of Ethan Allen. Now, Ethan Allen was.
1: You mean Ethan Allen didn't found Ethan Allen? N- he did, but then he had died.
3: But no, <laughs> let me get back. There were two, two, the founders of Ethan Allen was two Jewish entrepreneurs from Staten Island. Oh my God! Now, you folks may not know Everybody this. Everybody
0: drank. That's in, right. In
3: 1932, they went to Vermont to the Northeast Kingdom and established a, a furniture company and called it Ethan Allen because, you know, Ethan Allen came from there. Because they
1: weren't going to call it like Shlomo and Morty. No, they called it, it Ethan to... Allen
3: <laughs> and started making early American furniture. And they were really entrepreneurs. They did great things. They, can, they established Ethan Allen galleries. And now uh, they, the headquarters at that time was in uh, Manhattan. So this, my friend Roger Whitman said, I know the chairman and one of the founders of Ethan Allen would like to meet him. I said, yes, so I went there. He brought in one of his merchants and says, young man is from Kashmir, do we get anything from there? He said, yes, we get this fabric, never comes on time, always a problem. So he looked at me and said, you can help? I said, absolutely, I had no idea. (laughs) So I got in the fabric business with Ethan Allen. Well, that's how it started. Then a year and a half later, he calls me. Oh, but, but the question is this. You can't say absolutely and don't do it. You've got to say absolutely and do it. That's the difference.
1: So Rabbi Kathwari, we, um, we are out of time. We're out of time, but before we go... You know, you, you've spent a lot of time around Jews, it sounds like, and not just visiting your mother. But are there any questions that you have about our people that are still unanswered? You know, we always give the Gentile of the Week an opportunity to, it's a safe space to ask us anything that's still just really, there's no question too uncouth and nobody here is gonna tell anyone what you say.
3: Is there well, anything you want to know? No, but I've got to tell you this. You know, About two years back, or three years back, when we had established this Muslim-Jewish Advisory Council, the AJC is still running it, Stanley Bergman and myself, I was invited to speak at the AJC big convention in Washington. I don't know, there were three, 4,000 people. So I got up there, and I looked at all of those folks, and I, I, I said, this question might come up, that just, what you've just asked. I said, let me tell you, what in the native language of Kashmir, what's, the real, what's called? It's not called Kashmir. If I were to meet you, I would not ask you, are you from Kashmir? And I would call you, are you from Kashmir? And the person coming from Kashmir is called a kosher. So I said to them, I am more kosher than anybody here or your 3,000 people. I became um, president of Ethan Allen now 36 years back. So I've been running that company. And Ethan Allen has in now 87 years has had only two CEOs, Nat and Sal and myself. Wow. And I've just, I'm just getting started.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for being our Gentile the week. Thank you. You see, even when we find somebody who's not Jewish... They're kosher. They're kosher. That's, that's absolutely right. Mazel tovs. Liel, have you a Mazel Tov this week? I do.
2: To a, a small company, you know, an underdog in the, the American corporate landscape, Disney. Today, having launched... A service that I I kind of think would probably mean that you will not see or hear from me in the next, you know, three years. Uh, Disney Plus is out today featuring The Mandalorian, the Boba Fett story, all the Star Wars, all the Marvel Universe. It's like someone out there really cares. Who's more
0: excited? You or your kids?
2: No, no, me by far. I was up at like 5.54 this morning to make sure that at 6 a.m. sharp, which is the moment it debuted, I downloaded the app and signed on. Like, I can't tell you (laughs) how into this I am. They made a show about the Baba Fett universe starring Taika Waititi and Werner Herzog. It's like someone has been reading like my diary and then producing it en masse. It's amazing.
1: So basically, that was Aramaic to me. What you just said was wah wah
2: wah wah wah. Nerd Her- nerd nerd. Werner, Her- ber, 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 ber.
1: nerd, nerd, nerd Werner Herzog, wah 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 wah, six a.m. wah wah. Correct. You know, you know who might have been on at the same time was Jay Michelson, actually. He oh, prob- oh, absolutely. <laughs> He's probably super into that. Stephanie, uh
0: well speaking of new <laughs> creations coming into the yes. world, I have a big muzzle to my sister Francesca and Cliff Silverman on the birth of little Charlie and a big muzzle to big brother Noah who is taking it all in stride. He says, "Baby Tally" want oh. to
2: see the baby. I mean, I'm very excited about baby Charlie, but does he feature all 30 seasons of The Simpsons?
3: <laughs> he will <laughs> if soon. if he doesn't,
2: I just don't know he that it matches
0: sleeps, up. He mostly sleeps, but he's very cute, and I'm excited. to be Being an ant has been just like the best thing ever, and I'm now a, a double ant.
1: I have a whole passel of Mazel Tov's uh, this week. The first is to uh, Joseph Goodman, uh, Yossi Goodman, as I've always called him. He was my daughter's first Hebrew tutor when he was a college undergrad. He then uh, spread his wings. He got a BA from college and graduated into the big world. And just the other night, uh, Sunday evening, he married his college sweetheart. Actually, not really. They started dating, I think, like April of senior year. Memo to all of you, uh, ask her now, ask him now. Those are
0: actually all the couples who stay together. Ask them now. That's right,
1: that's right. Don't graduate without having made the move because Joseph Goodman and Laura Spire got married Sunday night in a fabulous, wonderful, beautiful wedding to which they invited all seven Oppenheimers. Uh, their babysitting game was strong. There were uh, a lot of flower girls. They called it the flower posse. The flower posse had to be there even before the Badecken and the tish. Uh Were your girls
0: in the flower my posse? My girls were all in
1: the flower posse. That's so nice. It was wonderful. Uh, and they had the best party favor for the flower posse ever. Each kid who was in the flower posse got a sleeping bag with their name oh stitched into it. And they were able to kind of curl up in these sleeping bags in the babysitting room while they watched movies during the wedding if so chose and it was just it was so thoughtful right like because like a sleeping bag you will have that with you forever you will always think joseph and laura's wedding joseph and laura's wedding uh even into adulthood you could have that sleeping bag so mazel tov to joseph and laura was a beautiful wedding we are so 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 happy for you also sid olivia nay fremer now oppenheimer turned 43 years old this week and so a happy birthday to her welcome to your mid-40s my sweet love And I'd like to conclude by turning a Mazel Tov over to a listener. We got this voicemail about someone we've heard of before.
5: Hi, I wanted to ask you to give a Mazel Tov to Rabbi Paula Rose in Seattle at Congregation Beth Shalom. Rabbi Rose and her husband Jeremy just had their first child, a daughter named Adina Rizka. And Rabbi Rose has been instrumental in bringing interesting Jewish podcasts to our congregation, including, of course, Unorthodox.
0: So it would be great to give her a shout out. Thanks.
1: So Mazel Tov to Rabbi Rose and family.
0: And now the mazels from our Stanford show. There were some very good ones. Let's hear them.
5: Oh, this is awesome. My name is Robin Fischel. I'm from Stanford, Connecticut. And I'd like to offer a mazel tov for my parents, Ellen and Richard Weber, upcoming 40th wedding anniversary. Amazing.
0: I love that.
4: Okay, okay, I'm Elisa Kaplan. And I would like to give mazel tov to the Jewish Historical Society of Fairfield County. For getting a grant from the city of Stanford for our Family Store project and for honoring two amazing women, Judy Altman and Agnes Verdes. They're both Holocaust survivors and they've spoken to over a hundred thousand people.
0: All right. My name is Marissa Fernandez. I wanted to give a mazel tov to my team, the Hillels of Westchester staff. We are killing it for this high holiday season and unfortunately my team couldn't be here because we had a board meeting but I got in a, an excuse slip to come here tonight. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Roz, and I wanna say a mazel tov to my husband for becoming a moyle.
1: Oh! <laughs> I'm Andrew Sverdlov and I wanna give a mazel tov to my granddaughter Rachel Sferdlove, who went through a kosher conversion.
5: Beth Levick from Stamford, Connecticut, and I want to do a Mazel Tov to my son Ari, who will turn five next week, and to my mother, who next month will turn 70.
4: I'm uh, David Bedane from Scarsdale, New York. Uh, two years ago, I think this week, you did a Mazel Tov to my son and uh, and his bride on their on their marriage, and I'd like to do a, a mazel tov on the birth of our first granddaughter. Yeah. Yay! Mazel tov. What's the
0: name? Uh,
4: Gabriella Rose Bedane. Oh, I like oh. that.
0: Hi, I'm Melissa Garber Hyman, and I'm from Stanford. Um, I wanted to give three mazel uh, one is for my son, who just got married. The other one is for my daughter, who's getting married in a month from now. And the third one is for my husband, who just started a new job in the prison industry. Wow, that's a lot going on for this family. <laughs> mazel tov. <laughs> There's a
2: metaphor in there somewhere, mazel tov. That's right, mazel tov.
0: Hi, I'm Lillian Ta from Woodbridge, and I'm so excited to meet you guys, because I listen to you every week when I walk but I wanna wish my son, Alexander, and his new wife, Alexandra, a mazel tov on their back. <laughs> oh. What was their wedding hashtag? Mazel oh. tov.
1: I was, see, my, my joke was gonna be, that's love. When you, when you, like, invite a lifetime of bad jokes into your world, you, you, you gotta really love each other. That's Mabel amazing. Mazel
0: to them. Okay.
1: Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us and leave a voicemail 914 570 4869. That's 914 570 Israel Woodstock. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email Josh Cross at J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. You need to wear and carry stuff from Unorthodox for mugs or cozies or onesies or t-shirts. Go to bit.ly slash shirt. You can follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Eleazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem. Their website is is golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic Supervision this week by Rabbi Joshua the Hammer, Hamakabi Hammerman, Rabbi Jerry Ginsburg, Rabbi Vicki L. Axe, and Cantor Moshe Bear. We usually come to you from Argo Studios in Lower Manhattan, but tonight we are coming to you from Temple Bethel of Stamford, Connecticut. Shalom, friends. <laughs>
4: Thank you.
0: By the way, the heavens just opened behind you. <laughs> we'll see you in the reception hall. And we're we're here.
1: This is the classic Leon Leonwood Bean LL Bean of uh, Portuguese flannel That's shirt. That's what they're called. The original LL Bean was Leon Leonwood bean so like Jewey ju- jews no 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 super wasps oh. leon middle name leon wood
0: oh i hear leon and i hear right. like leon rushing, automa- guy. automatically
2: as you know, a guy eating a corned beef sandwich no
1: no 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 <laughs> super super wasps up in maine who used to you know stitch the clothes like it used to be mr bean's descendants and their friends in maine stitching the clothes and now they've outsourced so they're a the lot anti-J of j
0: press
1: they are the anti j press
0: not an ad just an observation